Welcome to Evidence-Based, a new Harbinger psychology podcast. We're your hosts, Cassie and Kendall. On today's episode, we're talking about perfectionism. We're joined by Jennifer Kemp, a clinical psychologist in private practice in Adelaide, South Australia. Kemp works with adults and adolescents on issues such as perfectionism, anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, eating disorders, and chronic illness. Kemp uses acceptance and commitment therapy to help people notice their experiences make conscious choices in the moment, and take action toward a fulfilling life. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer. We're very excited to have this conversation with you, and we'll kick it off with Cassie to talk about perfectionism. Perfectionism is a term that's thrown around quite often. Can you talk about what perfection is and what it isn't? Sure. Um, Perfectionism is a term that's thrown around a lot, uh, and particularly in the last few decades, I think. It's always been something that's been thought of as um, like a personality trait, really. You know, you sort of are a perfectionist and that's sort of part of who you are. And uh, I think in some ways that's true. I think once you've got some perfectionistic patterns, they're very hard to, to lose. I think it comes with that kind of sense of striving and wanting to do a really good job. Uh, but I like to also think of it as something that we can change, something that we can work with. They're sort of there's sort of helpful and unhelpful parts of perfectionism. And it's really nice to be able to think about, okay, I can keep those helpful parts of the perfectionism, the sort of patterns that I'm in, like the the striving, like trying to do a good job and, you know, perhaps, you know, wind back some of those unhelpful aspects of perfectionism without kind of like throwing out all the good parts. So it's kind of like a I guess you'd say like a set of behaviours is how I would look at it, really. A set of patterns of behaviour that you can get into that can really wind you into some pretty unhelpful areas. And as we're talking about unhelpful perfectionism, can you elaborate a little bit on that and how it can really hinder someone, um, you know, in any sort of area of life? Sure. Yeah. So unhelpful perfectionism is... I guess uh, I look at it as kind of having five parts or sort of five processes to it. There's um, setting those sort of high standards, the, the striving towards doing a good job becomes unhelpful when it, when it sort of becomes a set of rigid rules that you have to live by. So once you are sort of setting that, gone from like I want to do well at school to I need an A on every subject to I need an A plus on every every like quiz and every assignment on every subject, once it's sort of become kind of that rigid rule, then it becomes something really unworkable in your life, really difficult in your life. Um, and to, so when I'm working with perfectionism, I'm trying to help people get back to maybe holding some of those rules lightly, not dropping those standards. Like you can still want to do well. I don't think the standard needs to go. It's kind of the way that that standard is, has become kind of this 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 rule that we have to live by all the time. And it's it's almost, you can, it's why perfectionism and OCD kind of go together because that rigid rule can become kind of like an obsession if it gets really bad. Um, and if, I, if you don't mind, I'll just go on and explain those other sort of processes. So the second thing I see in, in unhelpful perfectionism is a fear of failure. So you kind of, if you're setting your standards really high, and you always have to get them, then you feel terrible about yourself if you don't get them. And that feeling is awful. 
we've probably all experienced it, <laughs> messing up. I get a sick feeling in my stomach and I want to avoid that at all costs. So um, that's sort of the feeling that comes with failure and you want to kind of get away from that. So I think fear of failure is kind of like the engine room of perfectionism and sort of wanting to get away from any. And when I say failure, I mean like any type of mistake, a social mistake, like a bad grade, um, uh, like just an error, like sending a mistake in an email, like a spelling mistake. Some of my clients really struggle with any tiny little mistake and uh, it becomes grueling trying to avoid like live your life to try and avoid making mistakes and with those two things comes a sort of sense of self-criticism so the other thing we're trying to get away from in perfectionism is the self-criticism that comes with all of that and that self-criticism is relentless I don't know what your experiences are but for, for me uh, self-criticism and perfectionism is kind of like this fault-finding, nitpicking, you know, you should have done this better, you should have done that better, don't do that, you might get that mess up, you might make a mistake, like it's just relentless when it really gets going. <clears throat> so that self-criticism is something that uh, is kind of pervasive in perfectionism. I work a lot with people on that. And so what you're seeing is because you want to get away from mistakes and you don't want to end up criticizing yourself for making them or failing in some ways. You sort of do a whole lot of really unhelpful behaviors. That's the fourth process I'm looking for. So a whole bunch of unhelpful patterns to try and get away from um, those sorts of things. So that could be anything ranging from kind of actively trying to avoid mistakes. And I think the stereotype of a perfectionist is that kind of like type A personality, you know, like really working hard, like uh, the, the overachiever, that kind of thing. But you'll also see an equal number of people who, when they're trying to get away from those things, their response is to actually just pull away altogether. Like I can't do anything because I can't do it perfectly. So it's kind of the paralyzed. And then that fifth process I'm looking for is like the consequences that you'll get across your life because of a lifetime of, like the burnout that comes with kind of overworking or the just the lack of achieving what you want to achieve because you keep pulling out of things. Like I I was absolutely terrible at sport when I was a kid. I'm not naturally coordinated, I think. It's taken me okay, I'm catching up a little, but I'm really still a bit of a clumsy person. So um I hated sport and my response to that was not to try and get in there and get better, but actually just completely avoid it as a kid altogether if I could. So, um, you know, I avoided dance the same way and <laughs> so <laughs> those kinds of things, yeah. So, that, yeah, just to sort of map it out for you, they're the sort of things we're looking for and seeing imperfectionism. I understand that avoidance well. <laughs> um, mm. I have a quick follow-up question for you about sort of those really high standards that are set um, for someone struggling with perfectionism, do you find that, like, even when they reach the top, like, that's just not enough? Like, you know, like, they they succeed and they get the A, but it doesn't feel like it, how it should feel to to accomplish that. Like, there's always something better you can do. Yeah, yeah, actually, thank you. That's a really good point. There's this sort of process that happens in perfectionism that when in the unhelpful side of it, that when you achieve your goal, then it's like, ah, you know, anyone could have done it. It's sort of tendency to dismiss it. I don't know where that kind of comes from, but you see it all the time. 
And so, oh, you know, anyone could have done done that. I'll, I can do better. I should be able to do better. And then just setting the bar higher, which is what kind of leads you to perpetually feel like you're failing, even though you're doing really well. Mm-hmm. still feel like it's just never good enough, really, like never quite enough. Like, and just searching to kind of, I think, feel good enough in yourself, really, you know. And if I, if, if what I achieve is kind of like a proxy for like how I feel about myself, if those two things are linked together, then, um, and I keep raising my standards just that higher and higher and higher, just that little bit higher every time, I'm always going to feel like I'm not good enough as a person. It's crushing, actually. Yeah, and there's never really a celebration of any of the success, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. that's one of the saddest parts of the whole thing, really. Mm -hmm. You see people who are, you know, on paper and in life, like hugely successful and just so chronically unsatisfied chronically hating themselves sometimes so sad um and I I want to ask about perfectionism and how it impacts your relationships because I feel like there's a lot to talk about there um so can you talk about what that looks like and how it can impact someone's relationship yeah sure um I think it in two ways, probably more. Uh, If you're holding yourself to really high standards and you're feeling that kind of crushing feelings of never good enough, it's hard to feel good enough in a relationship. So I think, you know, if you're feeling like that, that's going to interfere. And also if you're holding your partner to some sort of really high standard or your relationship needs to always look like that kind of romantic ideal or you've got some sort of vision for how things should be, that's a really hard standard for anyone else to maintain or or reach. It can leave people feeling like they're never good enough for you. Um, And and in in romantic relationships is kind of how I hear the question. If you think about it, it's also if you have a boss that has just got really perfectionistic, you your relationship with them can feel like you're never good enough for them and they're always unsatisfied with you. Uh, if it's, you know, the parents to a child, you know, if you're, you know, and I, the, one of the reasons why I love this topic so much is because I've really, I've struggled with being perfectionist myself. And um, my husband has told me that it's okay to say that he's also a perfectionist. So he's <laughs> um, so like, can you imagine? I'm really, and we're both psychologists, so, you know, my, our poor children, honestly. Um, and, you know, I think I see some aspects of perfectionism in them too, and I've really tried to work on that relationship so that they know that they're good enough for me, you know, that they're that I'm not constantly trying to make them better or have them meet my ideals. I don't think I've done that perfectly. Um, I'm sure I've given them, them like that couldn't you do better message uh, at times, but really try to work on that because the last thing I want is for them to go through life. Like I've gone through my life just constantly feeling like that dissatisfaction and sort of pushing myself in really unhelpful ways. Yeah. So it affects relationships of all kinds. I think that kind of particularly the standards that you hold for other people can be really, yeah. And of course we learn them from our parents too, right. Or from our teachers too. So partly that's my dad likes to say to me, um, 
like, oh, you know, you've written a book about perfectionism. Like, I'm so sorry. You must have got it from me. <laughs> so, <laughs> it comes from somewhere. <laughs> like, dad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really interesting, um, your own personal experience with perfectionism, because when I was um, told by my therapist that I might have some work to do with perfectionism, it never occurred to me. Um, that that would be something I was struggling with because I have always viewed perfectionism as having to be really uh, good at something or excel at something. And I never feel like I do those things, but I'm constantly working to achieve them. So it kind of like flipped my understanding of perfectionism upside down a little bit. Um, But one of the things that did make a lot of sense to me was that the through line with perfectionism is control. Um, and I wanted, I wondered if you could talk about that and what role does control play in perfectionism? Yeah, sure. Control is very subtle. I think, uh, if we're just thinking back to talking about relationships, trying to control others is obviously really, um, trying to make sure everyone else is achieving to a sort of perfect standard is quite toxic. If you have that in a manager or in uh, a parent or something like that, but if you, hold those standards your your own parent as well right so you're holding those standards for yourself you're trying to control your own behavior to get a certain outcome the other uh, that's very common in perfectionism absolutely i must you know check this work and i must control the outcome that 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 you know of this work so i'm trying to kind of control to make sure that i don't fail to make sure that i don't end up in a position where i'm criticizing myself we're also really trying to control our inner experiences. That's where we always kind of end up in conversations I'm having with people because what we're trying to, like we're running, fighting and hiding from is that sick feeling in the stomach, that kind of lurching or clenching feeling that you might get when you feel like I've made a mistake. And I think it's a lot of that is shame. Humans will do a huge amount to avoid feeling any kind of shame. Like we'll go to great lengths. That is one of the the hardest emotions that that we have. And it's it's not just an emotion. Like shame is that kind of feeling sad or feeling embarrassed that we've made a made a mistake. And the thoughts that go with it, like I've made this mistake because there's something wrong with me. So it's a very deeply personal kind of experience. So. Yeah, we're actually trying to control how we feel, trying to control our emotions, trying to control the outcome of what we do. You're right, you know, and that control is that through line. It's that, um, I guess, what you're often trying to see. Even by avoiding something altogether, we're trying to control the outcome, right? Because I can't fail if I don't participate. Um, Yeah, so I guess it's there right the way through. And as a follow-up to control, um, because, you know, as we're talking about perfectionism, having kind of your hands in things and making sure that it's going the way that you feel comfortable, why would vulnerability be so scary for somebody who suffers from perfectionism to not have that sense of control or handle over the situation? Yeah. Well, vulnerability is hard for most people, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Straight off the bat. Um, well, it's hard to be vulnerable because how you feel about yourself is dependent on your performance. It's dependent on kind of what people will see of you. So I'm thinking, like linking those sort of things together, we're trying to control the outcome so that we make sure that we 
feel okay about ourselves, that we have achieved enough. And somehow that standard has got kind of really rigid, really rule-oriented. Then we need to, um, uh, like, being vulnerable means looking, like, other people potentially seeing us as a failure, taking a risk to make a mistake is really hard because not only might we really feel uncomfortable about that but other people might see that you know and human we're social monkeys we want to be accepted we want to be part of the their group our um our community and uh other people seeing us failing it's even worse than just seeing it ourselves so being vulnerable is so painful isn't it like if you make a mistake and you feel that that gripping fear of social embarrassment it's yeah it's really hard it's why we work so hard right (laughs) earning your continuing education hours doesn't have to be a painful experience the right course can open your mind to new possibilities increase your confidence and hand you powerful tools to transform your clients lives praxis continuing education and training teams up with some of the brightest minds in mental health to provide cutting-edge, evidence-based training for practitioners. You can learn firsthand from experts like Stephen C. Hayes, Kelly Wilson, Robin Walzer, Kirk Strassel, and many others. Find your next training at praxiscet.com. That's praxiscet.com. And along with what Kendall said too, you know, I always just thought I was very type A, like very organized, very like my parents always said that they never would have to discipline me about any of my grades because I was always harder on myself than they could ever be. And until I was reading through your book, prepping for this interview, I was like, oh my gosh, like this sounds just like me. So, you know, a lot of your book really, uh, stuck with me, um, And I wanted to talk about ACT and perfectionism and one sort of how, how you came to this uh, treatment for perfectionism and why it's so powerful. Yeah, I love working with ACT. I think um, I, and what's so amazing about ACT is that it's a set of skills and a tool, like a toolkit as a therapist that you can really apply to any issue. The ACT is built on this fundamental understanding that human beings suffer, that we struggle, and that that's part of our existence, that we're, um, that we have this incredible use of language, this incredible ability to describe the world that other species don't have. Um, you know, opposable thumbs don't hurt either, and all of those kinds of things too. But a lot of our success is really related to this use of language, and it also causes this incredible amount of pain because we're constantly comparing things to each other, you know, better, worse. We've got so many words in our language, thinner, faster, like um, smarter. Um, They're all comparative words. They're all creating relationships um, between things. And we uh, act as built on this understanding that uh, our behavior is sort of controlled by the way we use language in many ways. So we're looking at, um, when you think about just the self-criticism that most people seem to struggle with at least part of their lives, uh, that's all comparative, isn't it? Like I should be doing better, better than what? <laughs> should be, I should be, she's smarter than me. She's thinner than me. She's, um, 
or, you know, he's doing better in his life than me. I hear that kind of a lot. I should be at a certain point in my life and other people, you know, I'm 30 now. I should be doing this now. You know, all of these comparisons that we create for ourselves become that kind of self-criticism. And um, ACT is amazing because it kind of cuts through that and says that instead of trying to control our inner experiences, instead of trying to, uh, like, we're always trying to control our own suffering, we actually need to lean into that a little and um, accept that we will feel uncomfortable, that on the flip side of joy, there's suffering but if we try and remove all of the suffering we also lose all of the joy so we can't have one without the other and so it is possible to kind of lean into our suffering a little lean into that struggle and also experience more joy in life so um i love using acts for perfectionism because i think it's exactly the skill set that you need uh, and not to, you know, like I was trained in CBT and there are CBT approaches to working with perfectionism that are also valid. And it's a different way of looking at the world. But there's a big part of those approaches is um, disputing these, these sort of these unhelpful beliefs around, oh, God, I can't, I can't even like speak in CBT language feel fluently anymore. Where's it gone? Um, sorry, it's coming to me. The words will come to me. Um, they're looking at the, the rules that we set for ourselves as sort of rigid, irrational beliefs and that we need to challenge those. My argument is that I've never met a perfectionist who in the end has ever really changed their thinking. I don't think you can change your thinking. I think you can learn to steer it. I think you can learn to introduce like maybe some more positive things to think about and orient your world towards what's important to you so you're thinking about and pursuing those things, um, you can't actually control your thinking and stop your thoughts. There's, we have like 70,000 thoughts a day or something, so you just can't be tracking them all. So um, what I do think that CBT is doing there, though, in challenging those beliefs is, is taking this idea that you, like just sort of separating yourself from your thoughts and being able to look at them and say, they're things that I think but they're not necessarily true or anything I have to do anything about. In ACT, we call that diffusion. So we, we, we're trying to develop a, a perspective on our thoughts that, yes, we might have a busy mind and we might be thinking these self-critical things. Um, we might be really worrying about making mistakes. And that might be a really strong theme in our thinking. We don't actually have to do anything about the thinking. What we need to think about is, is how we respond to that, right? Like what we do in our lives that really matters. So ACT is also very oriented around values. It's a big part of the book is the whole chapter on sort of just trying to unpick really what is important to you, trying to funnel, you know, like a sifting process to sift out those kinds of key things. And they always, honestly, if we just cut to the chase, it's like, connections with other humans whether that be in loving relationships or children or family or colleagues and friends connections are always really important to people uh, for I think for uh, people who are perfectionistic a sense of achievement is often really really important feeling a sense of accomplishment or something like that in their lives young people it might be independence there's common themes that we have 
in um, in our values and ACTS is sort of trying to tease them out and try to orient you towards moving towards what's important to you, even in the presence of uncomfortable thinking, the possibility of failure, the messiness of life, that we can still move towards what's important. Gee, I could talk about that for ages, couldn't I? <laughs> Well, I thought I thought that was great because I was really curious why um, why you would feel so drawn to ACT versus a CBT style method. And I have to say, kind of comparing both of the modalities, um, ACT really does come in strongly on that self-criticism piece of it where you're just so hard on yourself um, about mistakes and failure and, um, you know, bringing those values back in into focus and kind of feels, act sometimes feels like a, like a hug <laughs> internally. So it's, um, it, it does feel very, uh, very well suited for perfectionism. And I wanted to ask about some of the other co-occurring conditions that you see with perfectionism. What, what are some typical, uh, typical conditions that you see associated with perfectionism? Yeah, sure. So I see OCD and perfectionism go together. In fact, I kind of conceptualize perfectionism as like on a continuum, like on a line and out one end at a severe level, really. You could treat uh, perfectionism like OCD or it could be, in fact, OCD. So when I'm working with other therapists, I'm often encouraging them to make sure that they check for that and make sure that they're just sort of looking for that. And if you're reading through the book and you're not a therapist, it's good to sort of think yourself, you know, are there some other rules in my life that might be going on here as well? Because OCD, I think on average, it takes about 14 years for that to be correctly diagnosed. So I think it's often, it's there in people and they're struggling with things that they think are normal, but they're actually like really hard to struggle with and cause a lot of suffering. So I definitely uh, look for OCD just to check and screen it out if, if you know, uh, or in. Um, and it's because there's the, that's where I think you're seeing the standards have become a, a obsessions, really, in OCD. Perfectionism also really fits amazingly well and is often part of eating disorders and problems with body image. So um, setting, if you have even a really perfectionistic standard for how you eat, you know, perfectly organic and keto and, you know, and it's become like, I can't like, but but what if, what if someone breathed something onto this, you know, that is toxic or like it's become quite obsessional, then, I mean, that's called orthorexia at times. It's a kind of an OCD kind of thing. But um, that even that kind of, again, that's the extreme end, but even sort of thinking like, I need to have a perfect body, I need to look a certain way, uh, I need to appear, like that's kind of how it started for me. I actually, she developed an eating disorder in my teens and um, I decided that I needed a thigh gap and a flat stomach and I was about 16 and everyone this is back in the, I'm old, right? This is back in the 90s. And, you know, back then there were all the models had thigh gaps and had a certain look and, you know, this was that sort of heroin chic kind of era. Um, and I thought that's what I needed to look like. Uh, so I went on a really strict diet over about six months to a year. And then I, it was really hard to come off that diet and develop really healthy eating habits. My eating just kind of went all over the place and sort of what you'd call an eating disorder. Uh, and it was really tied up with perfectionism. 
there because that, that sort of sense of I need to do this, I need to look a certain way and set a certain standard for myself was part of what got me into that. And another uh, thing is anxiety, of course. Um, there's another book out, a really great book called The Anxious Perfectionist. That's because it, I think it's a great topic because anxiety and perfectionism just go together so beautifully. That constant like, I don't want to fail, like, and I don't want to criticize myself. This kind of a running from something um, is living with a certain amount of anxiety that you might fail and that you might have these experiences of, of self-criticism that can be so intensely mean. I, I ask people to to describe like what their self-critical voice says to them, and it's it's horrific. It's like you'd never ever say that to anyone else. You'd never speak to a friend like that. So how is it that we end up saying these incredibly cruel things to ourselves? Just getting off track. Um, but you can see that um, how that would also link to something like depression, that one of the outcomes of perfectionism would be feeling a crushing sense of failure, feeling um, like you can't do anything right. So depression is kind of when we pull away from the things that are important, when it's when we get sort of stuck, unable to move forwards in our life. And um, so depression and perfectionism also go together. And in, and in fact, it's actually related to a whole bunch of other like diagnosable mental health problems too. Um, it is, it's related to PTSD because not when, when someone has like a traumatic thing happen to them, um, some people recover quite well from that and some people develop PTSD. And what, one of the things that makes you more likely to experience PTSD is if you hold an expectation for yourself that you should be better by now or you should be feeling recovering, you know, better, that you should be back to normal, you know, perfectionistic standards for yourself. And if you're not, then you're struggling and that's going to amplify those, that PTSD as well. So, yeah, it's a, what, what is so great about working with perfectionism is, and there's some studies certainly in eating disorders and anxiety and depression, um, Tracy Wade here in Adelaide actually has done some some work just treating perfectionism and measuring the outcomes on people's disordered eating, their anxiety and their depression. And just treating the perfectionism improved all of those things. They didn't tackle those things directly. So um, it's pretty cool, like that you can really just work on perfectionism as a as like a unhelpful process in your life helpful thing you're doing and it can have these knock-on effects yeah I was going to ask if it is a common thing that sort of goes under the radar because of all these co-occurring conditions it's maybe not something that is ever thought to be treated because they're dealing with you know the OCD the the body image the eating disorder um so do you find that it is something that sort of flies under the radar a lot yeah absolutely I do uh and in, and more so if it's the kind of perfectionism a pattern where you're pulling away and you're opting out, I think, because that the, the the stereotype of the type A overachiever um, is kind of more obvious to us. But um, I worked in 
um, for four years in cystic fibrosis um, in uh, in a hospital, and so it's a chronic life-limiting genetic disorder, and it involves a lot of treatments that have uh, quite. I mean, they the treatments are designed to make you cough, and sometimes you cough so much you vomit, and you and you're supposed to deliberately do this every day. Like, can you imagine? Plus, taking tablets every time you eat. And by the time the disease has kind of progressed to a certain point, you might be 25 and doing, supposed to be doing an hour or two hours of treatment a day just to potentially add years to the end of your life, but not really feel necessarily that great in the moment. So you can imagine I had um, quite a few clients, I think, um, who particularly trying to make that transition from teenage years where mum and dad, pre-teen, where mum and dad managed everything to teenage years, I was seeing them sort of as 18 and above. They'd had this idea that they had to do all of these things perfectly. They had to take all these tablets and they weren't doing any of it. And every time they would sort of start, then they couldn't kind of maintain it perfectly and they would stop again. So we kind of set up this loop of sort of so many experiences of failure. You know, Mum and dad and my family and my doctors are all saying, you need to be taking these tablets, you need to be doing this inhaler and so on and so on. And you're nodding and, yeah, absolutely. And you go home, you do it one day and then you forget. And it's horrible, so you don't want to do it anyway. And then you're just like, yeah, I'm, I'm a failure can't do it so it it definitely flies under the radar in those sorts of settings where it's that kind of opting out um or just so just so burned out from trying and perceiving that as a failure you just can't start again yeah I feel like it's a little bit hopeful in that um if you can notice these tendencies in yourself like you said earlier that certain diagnoses have gotten better by addressing the perfectionism. So I think that's kind of hopeful for people who are struggling with, you know, a variety of mental health issues to, to feel like they can address something that maybe is a little more um, easy to tackle or like to, to start with like a place to start, maybe not easier to tackle, but like a place to start, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even, I mean, if you, Ask someone who has a lot of experiences, a lot of anxiety. It's really important to ask, like, where's that coming from? So, and it may be coming from perfectionistic standards that you're holding for yourself, feeling like you're failing, self-criticism, those kinds of things. So, avoiding the things that you know might be failures and pulling out of things in your life, and that that's actually the maintaining factor. That's the cause, and the thing is maintaining your anxiety. So absolutely like addressing that is gonna have a great impact on your anxiety and the other thing um that perfectionists do and I know because I have a recovering perfectionist is setting like um trying to change these things perfectly like trying to be perfect not being perfect you know what <laughs> I mean like mm-hmm. and <laughs> trying to do sort of fix this problem perfectly too so you'll often um so what I'm working with so just you know back to that example of these these people who are really struggling to do their treatments we would try and break down their goals into something less perfect because it rather than like I need to do my treatment perfectly or I need to my body needs to look perfect in a certain way or my way you know I need to have a perfect health routine or um you know whatever the standard is you know can I in 
improve, like, can I increase the frequency of the health behaviors that I'm supposed to be doing? Can I look after myself a little bit better? Can I do it a little more often and just continue to build on that? Like, rather than I'm going to be healthy, I'm going to go for a walk every day. It's like, well, the first day it's raining or you forget, like, you failed, right? Because the standard is too hard to achieve. So if the standard becomes like, I'm going to see if I can do, do some walking this week. Let's see how many I can do. And let's see if I can get that into a bit of a routine for me and maybe keep increasing it over time. All of a sudden, we're kind of stepping away from a perfectionistic standard of change and moving into like actually starting to create small changes. Maybe I can only go walking once or twice a week, but that's a lot more than none. So it's a really good place to start. Yeah. And I think as you're talking about change and going back to act a little bit in the concept of flexibility, why is having a flexible mindset really um, important when it comes to, you know, treating your perfectionism? Yeah. So in act, we call that um, rather than mindset, we would call that like psychological flexibility. So it's the same thing I think we're talking about. So psychological flexibility in act is this idea that we can hold we can experience everything in our lives, the, the good and the bad, that we can hold it kind of lightly. We can hold ourselves lightly, like not have to have rules about ourselves. And then we can move towards what's important in the presence of all that, like the discomfort and the joy and all of it, that we can move towards what's important. So psychological flexibility is kind of at the heart of all of everything we're working on in ACT, being able to experience um, discomfort and still take action at the same time rather than just experience discomfort like the shame or embarrassment or something like that and not be able, you know, and run, fight or hide from that feeling. So we want to be able to move. I mean, it's called, actors called acceptance and commitment therapy. The word acceptance is tricky, um, but we are moving towards acceptance. Now, a lot of people feel, hear the word acceptance like um, like I sh- I've got to tolerate it, put up with it. Um, I, I've got to kind of make the best of a bad thing, you know, but it feels kind of forced and like something that I have to do. Uh, so I often, with clients, I never, ever use the word acceptance. I actually think, um, and your listeners might, might better relate to the word like willingness you know are you are you willing to feel uncomfortable in the service of living a life that is aligned with what's important to you so would you be willing to try this new thing or take a risk to make a mistake in the service of being able to you know live a better life so could you go out with friends and share, you know, talk a little more in your, amongst your friendship group, take a few risks in the service of deepening your connections with people, which is important to you in, in your life, those kinds of examples. And if you are, because if you are too scared to take a risk and you go out with people and you stay quiet or you don't go at all because you feel like you're not quite good enough or not don't look right or whatever, then you're missing an opportunity to build stronger relationships in your life. And if that's your core value, you're going to feel that. You're going to feel like you've, you're being pulled away from what's important. And that feels awful. That's depression right there. Yeah. 
So um, acceptance, willingness, that kind of being able to be flexible and um, and like accommodate uncomfortable feelings, psychological flexibility or flexible mindset, all the same sort of thing that ACT is working on. And it's right at the heart of what humans need to do because we're all taught that we need to, like that we should be able to control our feelings and our thoughts and um, all the inner sensations that we don't like, um, just the same as we might control, like it's cold and I'll put on a sweater or my car is broken and I'll take it to the mechanics and get it fixed, like that we can control our inner world the same as we can control our outer world, but we just can't. So we, can, we are still left with those experiences and uh, being flexible around them is what's important. And as we're talking about why it's important for flexibility or psych- psychological flexibility rather, um, you know, in the healing process or in, you know, in the process in general for perfectionism, I want to talk a little bit about self-compassion and how that plays a role. Um, when going back to when I spoke with my therapist about perfectionism, when she started to introduce that idea to me, the the funniest or most ironic part was that I was so hard on myself for not catching it myself. And I kind of defended my position to her like, well, I, I feel like I should have known this, you know, I have a pretty good handle on things. And so she kind of introed into self-compassion, which I thought was a very natural place to go. So um, I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that question. Um, you know, when I I look back through the book and 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 the work that I do, if I think if there's one thing that we can learn, and it's great that your therapist pivoted to that because there's one thing that as a perfectionist we can learn that would be really helpful. I think is to treat ourselves with greater kindness and um, self compassion. Act as self compassion is kind of infused into the act model because it's sort of saying like you're just doing what makes sense in that moment at that time and it's not heading you where maybe in the long term where you want to go but in the short term it makes sense it's a sort of a, a pragmatic kind of compassion around that like what you're doing is you're not trying to hurt yourself here you're just doing what feels natural to try and feel better um, and compassion focused therapy and, and other approaches like that teach even in more in depth, I think, how to find a sense of compassion for yourself uh, in the presence of potential failure, the shame that might come with that, and in particular, the self-criticism, I think. Uh, I often think about like self-criticism, and it helps me to think about that I've got kind of like an inner critic that's on board, um, that that's like a passenger on this journey with me, and that it's you know it's really really unhelpful it feels like most of the time because it's just sort of saying you can't do that you can't do this you know I don't want to use too much profanity on your talk because I'm trying to be like but I would say when I'm writing it's sitting there going this is shit this is shit this is terrible no one's gonna read no one's gonna want to read this no one's gonna read this book like that is literally the some some days the constant criticism going on in my brain and that's that kind of passenger on board that's critiquing what self-compassion would say is that that critic that you have has a good intention for you like it's part of you and it wants something good for you um 
it's a really bad way of going about it, right? really destructive way of going about it, no doubt. But underneath all that, it wants something from you. And um, my guess is that uh, mostly, so it seems, and I ask a lot of people this question, like what would be the good intention when I'm running workshops and individually in therapy? And it usually boils down to sort of two themes. Um, it either wants you to do well, so it's critiquing you to keep you on track, you know, you should do better, you could do better, that kind of thing. It's wanting you to do well or it's wanting to keep you safe. Like, don't do that because they might judge you or don't do that because, you know, you might you might bomb out or your boss will sack you. You know, it's trying to protect you. And uh, so we can have compassion, like, not just for ourselves, but also, like, for that part of ourselves that is trying to do, trying to help, um, just horrible the way it's going about it, but it doesn't know any difference. So, so it's like making friends with or at least know like being willing to have on board that kind of self-criticism um is is a really big part of working with that critical voice because the more I try and fight that self-criticism and get rid of it to stop myself critiquing myself the more I'm just kind of focusing on the self-criticism and I don't have my eyes on where I want to go I'm not kind of looking at what kind of life can I live you know, that will be what kind of um, like values are important to me. So just letting it be there, chirping away. Don't forget, this is really crap. This is really shit. You know, everyone's going to hate it. Like, thanks. I got this. Thank you. Thank you for your input again. Got it. You know, and I'm going to keep like, but I'm going to keep moving forwards. You know? And I'm going to keep writing. I'm going to keep typing, even though you're really loud today. Keep typing. Um, it is a, uh, it, it's just so important, yeah, self-criticism. And I love it. You can do, there's many different strategies. There's heaps and heaps of books on, on self-compassion. I know on compassion-focused therapy. So there's some of that in mind. But I think if that's something of interest, there's just so many great books um, that you can then kind of explore that are, uh, to eat that in further detail. And it won't, it, it, it'll help you in every aspect of your life. I think a, a great reminder to to call upon that self-compassion is reminding yourself that that voice is trying to protect you and it is coming from a good place, no matter how toxic it might be coming out. And uh, it reminds me of some of my therapy work about like speaking to my anxiety and where it's coming from and reminding myself that it is trying to do a good thing and then kind of seeing like, okay, well, I see why you're like worried about that. Thank you. I've got it. Like you said, um, so I think that it sort of takes it out of you and then maybe you're more compassionate to this little voice because it's not you, but it is. Um, yeah, but, exactly. but as we're starting to wrap up, I think a lot of this work can seem like a very um, hard task to tackle. Um, so how can we start to make room for that imperfection in our life? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Like, I think there's sort of lots of little things that you can do because you're right. If, and, and if you set a standard for yourself that you should be able to tackle this perfectly right there, you're setting yourself up to have a hard time. Um, so maybe just start by like picking one little thing that you can work on where uh, you are 
like getting stuck, spending maybe too long editing your emails, too long rewriting your um, your reports, those kinds of things, and just experiment uh, with like seeing if you can hand it up uh, like a little sooner, send the email a little sooner without checking, and just noticing what shows up because the the key is the noticing. So sending it without that final check through, for example. Sending a text with a spelling mistake is a fun little activity. Like deliberately putting your, your, you know, apostrophe, no apostrophe, something like that. So a lot of my clients are like, ah, oh, no way, no way. I'm sending something like that. Um, just because when you do, and it's pretty low stakes, you know, to, to send some of these things. We're not like trying to run out there and fail dramatically just sending like forgetting an apostrophe in a text to a friend is not going to actually end the world uh, even though it might feel like that in the moment Um, just trying out little things like that and then noticing what happens inside because that sensation that you're feeling um, I ask again lots of people and it's usually it's in the stomach when they make a mistake or somewhere in there like like a clenching twisting churning heavy sort of feeling something like that lurching dropping something like that goes on in their stomach and often if they're anxious about it it's there's a kind of a um like more anxiety base which might be in their chest like tightness tension agitation maybe feel a little agitated across their body those kinds of things um noticing that because that's the feeling that you're trying to get away from and so if you're listening for that like the first homework I ever set people is just simply noticing homework. Don't try and change anything. Just notice when that feeling shows up. Because when that feeling shows up is like there's something going on about making a mistake. And I, I found it useful because, you know, sometimes you're thinking, I just feel really uneasy. Like some stuff has happened. I feel really uneasy. And like, what what is it that's really bothering me here? Oh, there's that sick feeling oh, it's because I made a mistake. That's why it's not all the other bits. It's just that I don't like that. And then I can go, okay, there it is again. Don't like making mistakes. Because there's probably by now nothing I can do about it. Can I just, can I allow that feeling to pass? And guess what? It always does. It always does. Um, we, we know logically that if we were if we were going to get stuck on one feeling, we'd have the same feeling our whole lives, and we don't. They come and go, they rise and fall. So we know that feeling will pass. Just kind of watch and wait and allow. Um, that's a really nice way way to start. You know, just sort of being able to use that as a guide to sort of working out when mistakes, um, even teeny tiny ones, are kind of bothering you. Because even just by allowing it, we're practicing willingness right there. We're practicing, we're not running, fighting and hiding from that. We're just sort of letting it be there. Doesn't feel great. But um and we can still do what's important while we're feeling that. And one other little thing I would say um is uh self-compassion. So if you've like somewhere to start would be practicing out trying to speak to yourself with a warmer, softer tone of voice, you know. Um learning to kind of get that, uh, like even saying maybe the same phrase you might say to yourself, say it in a harsh voice and say it in a warm voice, like, 
like, you're no good at that. And it's like, you're no good at that. Yeah, it sounds completely different, doesn't it? Try playing, playing with the tone of voice and saying it out loud, sort of noticing what happens in your body when you can soften that because it makes a big, big difference um, to just that inner dialogue. It's kind of like, okay, like what do I need right now? Like how can I be helpful for myself rather than I should have done better, you know, um, trying to, to develop a softer way. There's probably a great way. And it takes a bit of practice. And there's, yeah, again, there's lots of different things. Google self-compassion exercises. There's just thousands out there. Um, <laughs> there's some recordings of the book and stuff like that as well you can use too. Well, I think that's a great place to end unless you had any final thoughts or takeaways you wanted to share. Because I think that last question, just, you know, making space for the imperfection in our life and, and really, again, that uh, constant being self-compassion and being a little easier on ourselves about the mistakes and allowing ourselves ourselves to make mistakes um, is really really big in this in this arena. The, the only thing um, the only thing I would add is that it takes time. So and this is just as I said before, this is about increasing the kind of frequency of that behavior over time. And not like I'm going to go from being really perfectionistic to really self-compassionate overnight. <laughs> I've been working on this consistently. So when I realized like you, um, slightly different, like I walked into a workshop and they were, it was on perfectionism. And then that's for me when the penny dropped. I was like, oh, my Lord. <laughs> hey, oh, my goodness. Right. And um, uh, that was about. 2011 or something like that I've been working on it since and I still fall into traps with it so I've been consciously working on this for a long time and I still get hooked into like oh that wasn't very good and my even my self-critical voice right now is going oh I don't know if I've done a good job on this podcast like it's literally just always there and um so it's about I think gradual progress and that softening and that awareness of what's going on in your body and and that's hard because I think, like any perfectionist, I would rather just leap to the finish line than have to deal with any of the messy middle bit. Yes. You know? Just make <laughs> me good at this now and then I don't have to do the rest of it. And that's what's really hard about about working through this process is you just what now, now I want to be good at this now. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so. And and it is definitely a journey. I um I have been learning German and that has been about the most humbling uh, experience as a perfectionist to try not to just skip to the part where I'm good at it because that is a long uh, journey. So a lot of mistakes made. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So, so, so many mistakes, so many ways of embarrassing yourself in a foreign language. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And I don't need my inner critic to be hard on me because there are plenty of people who will remind me <laughs> of all the mistakes I've made. Yes, Lovely. definitely a journey, though. Helpful of them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, thanks so much, Jennifer, for joining us. This has been really enlightening conversation and really important stuff. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And actually, you know, you guys sharing your experiences as well as like us all sharing together is what really brings it like these conversations that makes them really meaningful for me. So thank you so much for sharing. If you're a perfectionist, you know there's a helpful upside to pushing yourself toward excellence. 
achievement, success, and hey, it can be fun and rewarding to work hard. But unhelpful perfectionism can just as easily work against you. It can prevent you from taking risks or trying new things out for fear of failure, judgment, or rejection, cause you to procrastinate, and make you feel like no matter what you achieve, you'll never be good enough. Grounded in evidence-based acceptance and commitment therapy, the ACT workbook for perfectionism will help you discover what drives this dark side of perfectionism and develop the skills you need to overcome it without lowering your standards. By leaning into your values and treating yourself with kindness and compassion, you'll learn to put mistakes in perspective without wallowing in self-criticism. Most importantly, you'll find that you can allow for perfectionism without losing your drive to achieve. Visit our website at www.newharbinger.com and use coupon code PODCAST25 to receive 25% off your entire order. New Harbinger Publications is an independent, employee-owned publisher of books on psychology, health, spirituality, and personal growth. For nearly 50 years, our evidence-based self-help books and pioneering workbooks have helped readers make positive changes to improve mental health and well-being. Founded by psychologists Matthew McKay and Patrick Fanning, New Harbinger is proud to be an employee-owned company. Our books reflect our core values of integrity, sustainability, compassion, and trust. Written by leaders in the field and recommended by therapists worldwide, New Harbinger books are practical, accessible, and provide real tools for real change. Help your clients achieve lasting emotional balance with the DBT Skills Mega Bundle from New Harbinger Publications. This essential collection offers everything you need to effectively deliver dialectical behavior therapy in your practice, including a set of eight exclusive microskills videos to help improve client motivation and treatment. Visit newharbinger.com for more information. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show, and we hope you might share it with anyone who might benefit from the content. This podcast is not a substitute for counseling with a licensed provider.